This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. shocking to a number of us to realize just how extensive uh, this situation had gotten. And I'm joined today by Aaliyah Wright, uh, who is the author of the report uh, that broke this story. And you all know she's one of my favorite writers for Capital B News, which is one of my favorite black news publications. So, you know, we in good business today. Uh, Aaliyah Wright covers rural issues for Capital B. Previously, she covered rural affairs for State Line and reported on education and government for Mississippi Today. She's a 2022 Maynard 200 Fellow, 2020 Mississippi Humanities Council. Council Preserver of Mississippi Culture Award recipient and 2018 Educating Children in Mississippi Fellow at the Heckinger Report. Uh, she's got a bachelor's in journalism with a minor's in communication and theater from Delta State University, and she is a 2018 Educating Children in Mississippi Fellow. Uh, and quite frankly, she's really, really good at what she does, and her areas of expertise include black farmers, resource access, policy trends, rural culture, and lifestyle. Author of A Black Man Was Elected Mayor in Rural Alabama, But the White Leaders Won't Let Him Serve, Aaliyah Wright. It is always a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for being with us today. No problem. I'm happy to be here. Listen, I I saw this story and I was like, no, this is no, no. Somebody, this is a Mississippi burning reboot. Like somebody wanted to to explore this topic. I, I, this could not be true, especially in a town that, if I understand correctly, is nearly 85% black. Talk with us, Aaliyah. How did you first learn about this story and, and what are the current state of affairs in this town? Yes. So thank you again for having me. I learned of this story after reading an initial report from a freelance journalist um, based in Alabama. And I immediately started digging, looking at the lawsuit um, that was filed by, on behalf of Patrick Braxton, the black man who ran for mayor in 2020. And initially a few things um, stood out to me. One was the fact that this super small town of New Bern, Alabama, predominantly black town had never held an election. No one had ever recalled of an election um, for decades. So the position of mayor, town council members had been passed down as a hand-me-down um, from one white person to the next. Now, wait, and so, let, let me, can I yes. just pause you there real quick? Because now I, I'm not a pro, I'm, I'm in the administrative side of the legal world now. I, I run a nonprofit center, but I feel like I'm old enough to remember practicing law when having elections was a requirement. Of, of like, it, it, it was that legal in this town to not have elections, but to simply pass power from friend to friend? What was the legal authority under which this was their their model for 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 determining who was going to have capacity to run the city? I can't say that there was a legal authority that they followed. This was just a practice that the white folks in the town had created and decided to keep the um, tradition going. Um, and, you know, it's required to have elections. Um, there is a law, <laughs> you know, that you are supposed to have elections. Um, and it was, you know, based on conversations with political experts, folks, you know, in the town, this was um, an infringement on the residents, you know, voting rights. And wow. I think about, you know, a conversation I had with one of the black residents of the town, Miss Janice, who is a 72 year old, two year old elder, excuse me. Um, and I asked her, you know, why has something like this been going on for so long? And she was like, 
Aaliyah, to be honest with you, this goes back to the Jim Crow South, um, mm. you know, we're in the South, right? Um, and it reminds me of my parents, you know, they didn't even get, were they weren't involved or engaged in any, you know, town affairs because, you know, essentially the white folks didn't want to deal with you. And I quote her, the white folks didn't want to deal with you if you weren't working for them. And so that had been uh, the attitude of this town for years. And, and so when residents like Miss Janice wanted to be involved and they would try to attend town council meetings, she recalled the time being changed or the location for the meetings being changed. Even, you know, she recalled one meeting when she actually did get a chance to talk with, you know, the white leaders of the town. She wanted to suggest, you know, a recreational facility or an arcade for the young black children, you know, essentially all the children, black or white, um, in New Bern. And the response was from the, the white town leaders at that time, oh, well, there's no white children in New Bern, so why would we do that? So I think it speaks to deep entrenched segregation, racism that has just gone unchecked for so long. You know, a lot of people found it really hard to believe that this was happening in 2023. They said there's no way if this town is 85% black, how could they let this happened. That's the language that we're hearing because for a lot of people, it seems unfathomable that it makes sense that what happened in 1960, it makes sense that what happened in 1970, for some people, even 1980s, although why, I don't know. But it seems unfathomable to people to to hear that this is still happening in 2023. Why is it, do you think, what is the proper response to that question? Why would the 85% of black people in that town let that happen? What do you think is the appropriate way to respond to that question? Um, I think when you, uh, fr from the residents' perspectives, it's been, you know, years of trying to be involved and engaged and years of trying to work with folks who essentially don't want to work with you. Um, and they have tried to reach outside of their town from, you know, community organizations, legal law firms, uh, uh, state representatives, all the folks who are supposed to, you know, be there to support them in figuring out how to dismantle this system that has been ingrained for so long, no one wanted to help them. And so when you're experiencing all of these things, you know, so there's a lot of elders in this community that are just like, you know, I've been trying, but now I'm so disengaged to the point where I don't even have the energy to fight. Yeah. Um, but I think the beautiful part of it is that you have people like Patrick Braxton and his selected council that are like, no, this has been going on for too long. No more. We are pushing forward. And that was mm. essentially, you know, one of the reasons why he decided to run for mayor in 2020 because of the years of um, white leadership dismissing the needs of the community um, and, and, and not responding to their needs. You know, for example, one of the challenges or one of the issues that uh, came to a head was in 2020. We know the year of the pandemic, the town had received federal relief funds to ensure that residents were able to get, you know, items such as masks, disinfectant, all of the things to help mitigate the virus. The white leadership 
decided to not distribute those items to the Black residents of the town. Patrick Braxton said that he had to travel 20 miles to Greensboro to get help and support to not only get food, but also items to distribute to, you know, residents in the town. So I think, again, it speaks to the, you know, outright refusal to want to help Black folks in this town. And we're seeing outright refusal in a number of arenas right now, Aaliyah, that I think are are troubling. We're seeing outright refusal uh, to allow teachers to teach, outright refusal to allow children to have access to books and libraries, outright refusal uh, to expand health care and Medicare for the people who need it. It's just outright refusal to uphold the law in the way that is going to be equitable. And, And I think... Part of what we're grappling with in terms of the difficulty of understanding this situation is that in in this day and age, the idea that, well, no, you file a complaint and you get the people on the phone who are going to be there to help. Like the idea that people could just say, I hear your complaint. And the answer is no, I don't care. Like, is this a violation of the law? Absolutely. Do I care? Absolutely not. And we don't really have an infrastructure for, I, I think, uh, please push back on this if, if necessary, but I don't feel like we have an infrastructure for grappling with what it looks like when people in power have gotten that power due to a racist distribution of, of access and they simply refuse to be equitable in their, in the, administration of the law like that has happened repeatedly throughout our history and we are used to an integration model that said well no you file a complaint the EO, the e, uh, you know the the department of justice will come in and and we'll resolve it and it'll be fine but we are now seeing that the department of justice doesn't have the resources to handle all of these situations and all of these these concerns and outright refusal to adhere to the rights that we have, quite frankly, have undermined black people's efforts for centuries. And it feels like we're right in that space again. Yeah, um, it's yeah, as you mentioned, it's a part of a long history of resistance to black political leadership and, uh, you know, this larger movement for white folks to continue to hold on to that power, you know, in You know, Alabama is no stranger to this, even pointing to the recent example with the Supreme Court, you know, them having to redraw congressional maps to ensure that there are, you know, two majority black districts, but then they choose not to do that. They refuse. They told the Supreme Court, screw you. (laughs) They just outright refused. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I think about a recent article that was in Politico about this particular situation with the congressional maps and um, represent state representative Chris England, um, who is a Democrat on the redistricting committee, he mentioned that Alabama is the quote unquote make me state. Like throughout the history of Alabama, they have they are more willing to be forced to do the right thing by the courts. And I mentioned that because I spoke to a few political experts about you know what needs to happen next when when these situations arise. And their response was, uh, you know, you have to utilize the courts, even though it doesn't always work in the favor of the residents or yield the results they want. You have to utilize them to the best of your ability so that there can be um, some sort of enforcement or action that can come from this. But the other part of that um, that they mentioned was the fact that one, because when we talk about rural small towns, there's a lack of accountability, there's a lack of media presence that we need to mm. amplify these stories as best way as we can. But two, um, there has to be some organizing on the ground so residents feel empowered to speak out given you know the power structure, structures yes. at play, excuse me. Um, so yeah, I think 
just in talking to experts, even though we don't necessarily, there aren't necessarily uh, the, the perfect answer or the perfect storm of things that you need to do. But with given the things that we do have, the courts is probably the best route and on the ground organizing protests, that sort of thing mm-hmm. um, to help, you know, effectuate change. So what's the mood in, <clears throat> excuse me, in New Bern right now when it comes to the black residents? What is the mood? It sounded as though when I when I was reading your article, it felt as though uh, there is a we've had it kind of sentiment. It felt like residents are saying, uh, absolutely not. We, we This has gone on too far. We, we saw that not only has Mayor Braxton filed this lawsuit, uh, but it sounded as though the white leadership or former leadership, upon realizing that Mayor Braxton was the mayor, they just had another meeting and said, no, nope, we're the mayors. We're going to do it. We're in charge. And, and, and did I understand that correctly? Did they actually have another meeting that the white leadership that basically said, yeah, no, we're the actual elected officials, not the guy who was actually the elected official? Did that happen? Yeah. So after uh, Patrick Braxton became mayor, July 2020, um, allegedly, according to the lawsuit, the previous white leadership decided to hold a special meeting. Um, but what, you know, that the, the previous white leadership did admit to was the fact that they decided to hold a special election um, October 6th of that year. Um, and, and, and during that process between, you know, July and the special election, they submitted their paperwork to, you know, to file to become candidates. Um, and then they also because they were, quote unquote, the only people that filed <laughs> that paperwork, they then reappointed themselves at that special election. Apparently, no one knew about this special election. There, It was not publicized. Um, so that was, you know, one part of it. Them saying, hey, we're going to move forward and continue to be the leaders of this town. But they also went a step further, um, uh, you know, according to lawsuit uh, court filings and also Patrick Braxton, that he was locked out of town hall. They changed the locks. He's a volunteer firefighter. They locked him out of the fire department. So he had to fight fires alone. Um, he was locked out of the town's you know, bank accounts. He couldn't access the financial records with the bank. He also was denied access to the town's mail at the local post office. So at every turn as he's trying to you know, take his position and serve, he was denied access to almost everything. And he's, he also mentioned being followed by drones, almost being ran off the road. You know, so many other um, unfortunate, you know, incidents just because he wanted to make change in his community. Now, it's one thing if there's a group of rogue mayor wannabes who've decided where it's our town and we're going to keep the power. That's one thing to me, Aaliyah. But if you're locked out of town hall and someone changed the locks, that's not necessarily those rogue uh, mayor wannabes. That's a locksmith in town. If you're locked out of the bank accounts, that's bank representatives and employees at banking institutions who decided, yeah, when the fake mayors, the white boys came in and decided that they wanted to be the pretend mayors, we are going to actually acknowledge their fake documents because you have to have documents to change access to who who gets onto a bank account and who doesn't. So we're going to 
take their documents created by this group of people who fakely or fraudulently pretending to be mayor, and we're going to ignore, we're going to honor those fake documents, and we're going to change access to the bank accounts. The mail, if you're being denied mail by the, a federal postal worker, that is a federal postal worker who is in the authority uh, of the federal government as an agent of the federal government, choosing not to lawfully or choosing to Ill- unlawfully prevent you from getting access to mail to which you lawfully have a right to, to be able to, to peruse. It feels to me like this is beyond just those group of white men who decided they're going to try to keep power. This is a town wide, a, a white town leadership or the white leadership in this town. This is a, it feels like a, a collective effort. It feels very um, c- conspiracy like, if you will. Am I, am I completely off on this? Maybe I, I'm missing something. No, I think, you know, that was some language in in the lawsuit, you know, conspiring to deny him his civil rights and position because of his race. In the lawsuit, not only does, you know, is Patrick Braxton suing the previous white leadership, majority white leadership, I should say. Um, there's also a black woman who ser- who served who had served with them. Oh, yeah. I got um, a he's also about her in a minute, but we'll, we'll come back to her in a second. But go ahead. <laughs> And um, he's also suing the People's Bank of Greensboro, which is the the town's um, banking institution. And also uh, Lynn Thebe, I think is her last name. Uh, She, you know, served as the postmaster at the post office. So they are also Mm. included in that lawsuit. So, you know, folks, this is another one of those examples where you don't have to have a lynch mob. You just have to have agreement. You don't have to even have a majority of people. You just have to have enough people in positions of power who are in agreement that your black behind should not have access to power. And that feels like exactly what they're saying to Mayor Patrick Braxton. Aaliyah, what's the status of this lawsuit right now? And, and I feel like this is a story that we have, we, we kind of should keep following because I feel like this is going to have some legs. It feels to me like this is going to be very... Um, educational for those of us who have not seen this sort of white supremacist resistance up close and personal in real time. It's going to really teach us a lot about how folks move. What's the current status of this lawsuit that Mayor Braxton has filed? Yeah, so it's still in, you know, early stages. Um, I'm not sure if they've even scheduled like a hearing date yet. I need to check the lawsuit to see. But yeah, yeah, with speaking with the attorney, it's still early stages. Um, There might not, he mentioned, there may not be a trial until maybe 2024. So Mm. it's going to, you know, take some time um, for, you know, the litigation process. But in the midst of, you know, um, going through with this lawsuit, Patrick Braxton did say he's going to run for mayor <laughs> um, in 20, uh, what is it, 2025, I think is Alabama's mayoral or municipal election. And in the meantime, uh, they're raising money to um, organize, you know, voter education, voter registration to make mm-hmm. sure that there is an official election um, ahead of the next election cycle. So those are the two things moving um, the lawsuit and then the voter education and registration piece. So I feel like we need to, Jonah, I, please do reach out to Mayor Patrick Braxton. I would love to have him on this show, hear more about his campaign and learn more about what he's going through. And Aaliyah, I, I'm just grateful to you because your writing really helped to blow this issue up, at least from my perspective. Uh, let's talk about this one lone black woman who was a part of the unelected group of white leadership. Is this Viceroy? I, I, may, I, may, I may be messing up her name. I remember her name stuck out to me. Uh, what is Von Seal Brown Thomas. Von Brown Thomas. Thomas. Yes. Miss Von Seal. What, what's Miss Von Seal's story with all this? Is she is she there just to diversify the the all white leadership that had unlawfully maintained its leadership? What, what is her connection to all of this? 
Yeah, I wish I had known. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but I didn't get a chance to speak with her. Mm -hmm. um, I reached out um, to the attorney, well, the attorney representing her and also uh, the other uh, white folks that were on that council. They're not going to talk to me. Um, and I even, you know, spoke with Patrick Braxton, um, Reverend, Reverend Jesse Williams, all of the folks. They don't even know how she got on the council or wow. how she was approached to be on the council, they are even unsure of themselves. So hopefully mm. in a follow-up piece, I will be able to answer that question for you. I'm so glad we have a rural communities expert like yourself handling these stories because y'all, in, uh, throughout our history, it has always been in small rural communities where the quote unquote, and I'm, I'm being very facetious here, the quote unquote best practices in how to maintain slavery were, were perfected. It wasn't the, the, at a national level. It was on in small communities where they tried out a couple of things and then they decided to make it a rule and then that rule would percolate up to the state level and then we would see it sort of nationalized throughout the slave states. It's rural America where we, small towns, if you will, Jason Aldean, uh, it's places like these where we are going to see some of the real and intentional and quite frankly well executed efforts at preserving power and those are going to be the places we have to pay attention to capital b news was smart to have you on there b Aliyah right and uh we're grateful for the work that you're doing thank you so much for being with us today really appreciate having you here oh, oh wait before we applaud wait before we applaud how can people follow you and, and get more of your writing and reporting Yes, before I answer that, I want to say something to your last point. Um, yes. Christine Slaughter, who's a, a political uh, professor at Boston University, she told me, uh, what goes on in rural areas serve as a litmus test in the country for where we are when it comes to race and power. So mm -hmm. I just wanted to emphasize that because I think it speaks to your last point. But you can follow me yeah. with, you know, all social media platforms, Leah Wright, Twitter, or X now, um, <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, <laughs> uh, also capitalbnews.org. Follow us. Yes, follow them and become a paid subscriber. You will not regret it. Aaliyah Wright, really appreciate you having being you. Really appreciate having you here. Now we can give you your applause and it will be official. Thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Y'all, I'm telling you, this is the, the idea that it's rural America where we are seeing uh, these issues really come to the fore. I am not kidding. I'm not kidding. Y'all better pay attention. Because we think it's it, small towns. Yeah, they're in the news right now because of Jason Aldean's song. Uh, but quite frankly, small towns are where they figured out the best forms of torture. Small towns are where they figured out uh, how many uh, how many children a black woman could be impregnated with or should be impregnated with, uh, putting that in air quotes, between the ages of 13 to 20 uh, for her to be considered a good breeder. It was in small towns uh, where white men and their sons and their friends would be able to gather at plantations of all sizes and use black women's bodies and, frankly, black men's bodies for sexual assault practice. It's in small towns uh, where they learned how to implement rules that said uh, when you see a white person walking down the street you have to jump off the sidewalk so they don't have to breathe in your Negroidian air it's in small towns where they determine uh, that uh, you should not be able to leave one sharecropper that you had been forced into a, an, an unlawful contract with to find a job with another sharecropper unless the sharecropper who had unlawfully kept you trapped on their plantation gave you permission to leave. That was in small towns. It was in small towns where they came up with the black codes, which were a, reverse, a revised version of the slave codes, which were the rules that said how black people could operate when in spaces where white people might interact with them. It was in small towns where they perfected racism. 
It was in small towns where they perfected the dominance against black bodies. Small towns. Small towns. And it's in small towns where we have to pay attention. So this story coming out of New Bern, Alabama, God bless Patrick Braxton. Protect Patrick Braxton and all of the folks who have gathered around him. You heard what she said. Their resistance looks like the lawsuit and organizing on the ground and getting as much media attention as they possibly can on this issue. But right now, they are preparing for the next election. Right now, as he sits locked out of town hall, as he sits locked out of the bank accounts, as he sits locked out of the mail that he's supposed to access to run the affairs of the town, the town would rather engage in wholesale criminality, allegedly, reportedly, supposedly, than to allow this black man to lead. 